Well, good evening. You probably weren't expecting to see me. You maybe not even know who I am. You've probably seen me around here. Uh, my name is Scott. If we haven't had the, the opportunity to meet yet, and Jesse's given me the privilege of speaking tonight, and um, it's really an honor anytime you get to share the Word of God, and honestly, it's quite frightening because, because there's, this, there's this relational thing that's happening here where I'm saying, I feel like God has something for you in here, and you're saying by sitting there, we think you might have something and so, um, real quickly, can we just pray again? <laughs> Let's do that. Father, we uh, thank you that we have the privilege of opening up Scripture, your gift to us, really. And as we do this, we ask, Holy Spirit, would you um, let the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, be acceptable in your sight? Lord, would you take the words that I speak and um, do what they need to do? Uh, to translate into life for each person here, including me. We trust you in all of this. Amen. All right, well, we're in Luke. Uh, we're going through the... Okay, I'm not Anglican, from Anglican background, so I don't know all the terminology, but we're in Luke. And uh, we're in Luke 18, actually, tonight. And uh, you may know this already, but Luke's gospel is the first of a two-volume work, Luke, Luke and Acts. And um, if you really want a researched picture of the inauguration and the expansion of God's kingdom, read these two books together. You'll journey from the birth of Jesus through his ministry, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension to heaven, and then in volume two, which is Acts, you'll continue in Acts with the outpouring of God's promised empowering gift, which is the Holy Spirit. That is the gift of God, not all the spiritual gifts. Those are graces. But the gift of God is the Holy Spirit. And so you'll see the Holy Spirit, the launch of the church, and then the expansion of this newly inaugurated kingdom through the church into Jerusalem, Judea, and into the uttermost parts of the known world at that time. So that's what Luke is intending to do, when he, what he was intending to do when he wrote this. And this, by the way, the same church, the same project, the same plan that we're part of as the church of Jesus Christ, right? So as we know... Now, we know this is Luke's intent because at the very beginning of his gospel, it's actually what he said. He said everything's been carefully investigated, and he's writing it so that we may know the truth about the things taught in the church. Now, it's also important to keep in mind, as we're reading through this gospel and, and Acts and any of the gospels, that Luke was not only writing a historical account, but he was also preserving Jesus' teachings and key interactions. And he put them in a very intentional format to help us understand how God's kingdom engages with the very broken world that, that we live in. Like, who's welcome in the kingdom? That's stuff we hear a lot about. Uh, how one enters the kingdom how the kingdom spreads, how long it's going to last, where it's headed, why the cross is so important, um, and why the cross was actually a moment of victory rather than defeat. Essentially, how his life and ministry taught and demonstrated and launched God's promised kingdom and the beginning of God's restoration project. So today what we're going to do is we're going to parachute in to... Chapter 18, we just read it here, and we're going to read through it again uh, as we go along. As we look into this event, what I want to do, though, is have you think about three questions. The first question is this. 
Is Jesus smart? Is Jesus smart? The second question is, is Jesus serious? And the third one is, if those two questions, uh, the answers to those two questions are yes, then what are the kingdom implications, the invitations, and the opportunities for us? Now, parenthetically, the reason we need to think about these two first questions is because for many of us, we're good with saying, yeah, Jesus is my Savior, right? We're all good with that. But it's a completely different consideration when we, and, and we're not always sure we want to listen to him on the kind of life he says makes sense, or at least for me. I don't know about you guys. But for me, I, I think, well, I like you as my Savior. I don't know if I want you to be my teacher because there are really big implications for that. So let's talk about our immediate context a little bit. Our event that we're looking at takes place as Jesus and his entourage are walking along the border between Samaria and Galilee. Kind of a tricky road. Samaritans were hated by Jews. Galilee is for all the Jews, you know, where they were, a lot of them were living. They're walking on this road. Jesus is purposefully heading towards Jerusalem. Um, the reason he's heading for, toward Jerusalem is to confront the broken system of Judaism and to become the rightful king and to begin setting things to right on a global scale. Only it wasn't in the way any of them were expecting. Along the way, he's been teaching about the kingdom. He's been challenging religious leaders. He's been healing and restoring both Samaritans and Jews. Just not too long before what we're getting into, he healed, healed a bunch of lepers. There were Jewish lepers and a Samaritan leper. And, and the Jews hated the Samaritans. They didn't want to talk to him. And you know about that from the woman at the well, you know, from John 4. You know all about that if you've read that. So along the way, he's been doing all of this. And the crowds are growing and growing. And they've got religious leaders. They've got sinners. They've got tax collectors. They have self-righteous. They have poor. They have wealthy. They have families. They have sick. All following and all of them with their own agendas. And all of them with their own expectations, their own hopes, and their own fears. And everybody wants something from him. Everyone wants something from Jesus as they're following along on this path. And the disciples, that's crowd control. They were his security. Now, not only is he teaching them, but they're in kind of a tricky place. They're kind of you know, they're moving crowds around and they're trying to walk with Jesus. And you figure there are a lot of people with a lot of motives coming in. Who gets close to Jesus? Who has to stay away from Jesus? Can, can you imagine how tough this would be? Now, just in chapter 18, if you read through the whole chapter, they get it wrong a couple of times. Well, certainly children are going to slow the progress down, right? They're gonna, they need to be kept at a distance. Wrong. Jesus says, no, let the kids come. Let the kids come. And he uses the children coming as a kingdom moment to talk about what it's like to enter into the kingdom of God. Well, noisy blind people, beggars, they're, they're going to slow down the progression and, and they need to be kept at a distance. Well, wrong again, because Jesus stops the parade to talk to a blind man and heal him and send him on his way. It does seem, however, that they would welcome the wealthy because, as we all know, if you're wealthy, you must, be, uh, you must be experiencing God's favor, right? Doesn't wealth and God's favor e equal, equate? 
Let's talk or let's look at it. So let's read verses um, 18, and we're just going to read 18 to 22. A certain ruler asked him, by the way, I'm reading out of the NIV, if it sounds different than what Jesse read. He read a real Bible. I'm reading in the NIV. <laughs> a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit, murder, or commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. Well, all these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, well, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Let's stop there. Now, for us, this first bit of dialogue is kind of bizarre sounding. Um, it might seem a little strange, but not in this culture. Good was a word that you do not apply to people. Good was only applied to God. Or there were some Jewish, Jewish leaders that would apply it also to the, the Old Testament or to the, the first books of the Bible. Only God is good. So why in the world is he saying, good teacher, what do I have to do? Addressing Jesus this way almost borders on blasphemy, if it weren't true. Jesus doesn't deny his goodness, but you know what he does? He puts the standard back on God again. See, at the root of this guy's question was really, how good do I have to be? Or what is good enough to get a life that never ends? What's good enough? Something in him knew, even though he, he, you know, he'd been doing the, the commandments, something in him knew it wasn't enough. So what's the missing piece? Now, isn't this question of what's good enough what everyone wants to know? Think about every other world religion from, aside from Christianity. It isn't, isn't that the big question is, well, how good do I have to be to tip the scales in my favor so I make the cut? And unfortunately, this sometimes subtly seeks, um, it, it works its way into churches. And we may start with, well, it's all grace. It's all grace. But once we get in the club, once we get into the kingdom, then we start kind of assessing, well, what do I have to do to maintain this relationship with God? What's my minimum viable product that I have to present to God? What is my, how much sin cushion do I get to keep? And we kind of want to know, well, what's, you know, we all want to measure. So Jesus points him to the Ten Commandments, and he says, well, you know, he lists them out. He lists out, interestingly, he lists uh, out five of them. He didn't put, he didn't uh, uh, give the last one, which is about coveting. It's all about possessions. And he didn't say anything about the first few, which is about worshiping God. You might think this is just a sample list, but don't underestimate Jesus. He's making a very important point. This guy says, well, I've done all this stuff since I was a boy. Now, right before this encounter, Jesus had had this encounter with the children, right? Where the disciples said, no, keep the children away. Jesus says, no, bring the children to me and blesses them. So the, the ruler might be in his mind thinking, well, like, I'm like a kid, Jesus. I'm like one of the kids. I'm accepting, you know, I'm doing all this stuff like a child. I'm receiving the kingdom that way. So Jesus does this. He says, he, gives, he invites him into this lovely self-examination. And the opportunity for true freedom, kingdom freedom. He says, you still lack one thing. 
Let's talk about what, better yet, who you trust in. What's your attitude about possessions? Which, by the way, again, is the 10th commandment. He says, sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. Basically, he's saying, put your heart in the right place and put your feet on the right path. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Put your heart in the right place and put your feet on the right path. Jesus was challenging the very heart of this person's dependence. If he agreed, went all in with Jesus, he'd be demonstrating his full and utter dependence and trust in God and his goodness, even at great personal cost. If he held back and refused, on the other hand, what, um, to give away, if, he, if he refused to give away what God had given him, he would be revealing that he was really breaking the 10th commandment, which meant he was really breaking the first commandment. Because if he was connected to those possessions so much, then guess what? They were taking the place of God. His possessions were his idol and were sitting in the place of God and his trust was in his possessions. Do you see how this goes way beyond this guy's money? Money for this guy was certainly an issue, but it wasn't the issue. The issue for him was where was his faith? Where was his trust? See, this is an invitation from Jesus to transform from faith in self to complete trust in Jesus in his way. Now think about this. Whenever we think we can outsmart God and stay in our own bondage to fear, which, by the way, we kind of think is freedom. We imagine that it's true freedom. If we can have what we want when we want it, how we want it, we think that's freedom. But it's really not. It's really its own form of bondage. But when we think we can outsmart God and and, and figure out a way to stay in our bondage to fear, which leads to grasping and controlling and manipulating and, and holding on. It's really a closed-fisted life, right? It's, I got this. Yeah, Jesus, I love you, but don't you dare try to open my hands with what I got. This is mine. Anything that keeps us away from the fullness of life and true freedom, Jesus is there inviting us to give up on ourselves, our heavy, hand, our heavy self-imposed yoke, and to follow him in an open-handed life. See, the life, in the life of the kingdom is an open-handed life. It's a life where we receive or we can give. doesn't matter if we have a lot or have a little. Money's never the issue. That's just what we're talking about here. This, by the way, is the simple invitation of Jesus. Give up on you completely and follow me wholeheartedly. That's what he's saying to this guy. This is so much more than believe in Jesus, manage sin, go to heaven. Which is what much of our Christianity has been reduced to. Believe in Jesus, manage your sin for a few years, you know, try to be good enough, measure, tick the, tick the boxes, and then you go somewhere else. You escape. That's not what this is all about at all. This is a complete giving up of one kind of life and trusting Jesus for a complete rebuild from the ground up. See, I, I, we sometimes, I got to stay on my notes or I'm going to go too long. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's, it's a dangerous thing 
when we live in the idea of get saved, manage sin, go to heaven. Or get saved, because, because what that does is it doesn't, it doesn't acknowledge the reality of when we come to Jesus, when we follow Jesus, it is a rebuild from the ground up. We don't even know what questions to ask. We don't even know, I mean, our life, when we come to Jesus, our life dies, and his life in us recreates our life. See, we're being recreated to be the image of God in Christ. It's a whole different thing than, than a value-add Jesus. It's a new creation. It's a clean, complete rebuild, his way now and forever. So this guy's in this crisis of faith. Look at he says in verse 23, when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Let's stop there for a minute. Well, this isn't what he wanted to hear. <laughs> he wanted to give me a task. Jesus, he didn't want, die to yourself and follow me. Give me a task. Give me something to do that's not that. Come back to the question, is Jesus smart? Is Jesus serious? What are the implications? So next week, spoiler alert, Jesse's going to be talking about Zacchaeus, and that's just right in the next chapter. When you compare this with what we're going to talk about next week, Zacchaeus, when he met Jesus, Jesus said, hey, let's go down to dinner at your house. Zacchaeus says, hey, right now, I'm giving everything away. Zacchaeus got it. He went all in. He wasn't going to hold anything back. I'll let Jesse finish on, do all that. Um, but, but it's a great contrast, and it's right next to each other. Read 18 and 19 this week. Matthew and Mark tell us this guy went away sad. He couldn't do it. He learned that God's demand, God demands much more than we think, but he couldn't wrap around, his mind around that he's also more generous than we dare to hope. But notice what Jesus did in verse 24. He says, Jesus looked at him. Now, Luke has this a few times, where Jesus looks at somebody, and he looked at him, and he says, how hard is it for the rich? Now, think about him looking at this guy. If you're the rich guy, Jesus is looking at you saying how hard it is to enter for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. How would you feel being the rich guy? Now, I think Jesus probably, hit, and his eyes were full. They were so full of compassion and longing and brokenheartedness for this poor guy. Jesus wasn't mad at him. He was heartbroken, offering an invitation to a whole new kind of life. Think about this. When he looked at him, and I, I think this implies how much Jesus genuinely cared for this person. See, it's impossible to have two masters. You can't serve God in money. You can't serve God in anything. It, that's just not the way the kingdom works. The kingdom is a complete death to one way of life and life to another kind of life. And that's really hard. And honestly, I don't like that. I don't know about you guys. I don't like it. I want to hold on to my own stuff, certain things. I don't want to say, okay, it's all yours. Well, 
So as we pan back from this picture a little bit, look at this, verse 26. Those who had heard this asked, (laughs) who then can be saved? If the rich can't be saved and they're favored by God, who can be saved? Jesus said, what's impossible with man is possible with God. And then Peter says, we've left everything. (laughs) We've left everything to follow you. And Jesus says, truly I tell you, no one who's left home, wife, brothers, sisters, parents, or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, life forever. Jesus says there's no hope for anybody on their own. Just look at our broken world. Look at our broken world. As people continue trying to steward creation, let alone figure out eternal life, it just isn't working. But with God, it's possible. This is such an important sentence from Jesus. So simple, but so profound. With God, it's possible. At this point, you know, Peter does his jumping in and Jesus says, look, you guys, rather than giving up and living the rest of, the life, rest of your life without, we now in the kingdom are finally able to live life without lack. That's the Psalm 23 kind of life. That's the, Psalm 23 is the kind of life that, that we get to live where the Lord is our shepherd. We lack nothing. We lack nothing. That's the kingdom life. That's the life that this Jesus was offering this ruler. You can have the kingdom life. And it begins now and it never ends. Let me conclude with this. Can any of you guys relate to this guy? I mean, I, I can. Maybe not the wealthy part. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't have that going for me. But... Sometimes I'd sure like to explore if there are ways to find out what I have to do to get the blessings of the kingdom but still hang on to the stuff of the world. Fortunately, Jesus loves you and me enough so much to let that happen. He continually calls us to give up, turn away from the old broken down ways that never really worked anyway, right? Put my trust, begin to follow him again out of bondage and into true freedom and life. Is Jesus smart? Is Jesus serious? And if so, what are the invitations and the implications for each one of us from this story? Father, as we let this sit with us, we ask that you would, that you would reveal it, those ways in which we do tend to respond like the, the rich ruler, the things that we try to hold on to. And would you reveal the hope and the opportunity that there is when we open our hands and give our life to you fully and completely over and over again. Amen.